all across America and around the world. This is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. Welcome to Veterans Radio. I am Jim Fossone. I'm the officer of the deck today. We've got some great programs for you. I think you'll find very interesting. We always want to remind you, you can find more about Veterans Radio at its Facebook site or by going to veteransradio.net where we're on the web 24-7. You can find a lot of our podcasts there as well. We post new ones every Tuesday, so you can get a new story, a new interview, something you didn't know before by going to veteransradio.net. And before we get started, we want to thank our sponsors. First up, we want to thank National Veteran Business Development Council, nvbdc.org. It was established to certify both service-disabled and veteran-owned businesses. You'll find out how they can help your business by going to nvbdc.org. We also want to thank Eisenhower Center. It's a brain injury recovery center. Learn more about EisenhowerCenter.com. They're located in Michigan and in Florida. We want to thank Legal Help for Veterans. Legal Help for Veterans fights for veterans' disability rights all across the nation. You can reach them at 800-693-4800 or on the web at LegalHelpForVeterans.com. Today we're going to hear about two stories of really extraordinary men, um, and, and maybe their theme here is about rescues. We're going to hear about um, the work that earned Lieutenant Colonel Charles Kettles the Medal of Honor, and we're going to hear it from the point of view of how that happened, how the Medal of Honor came about from uh, William or Bill Volvano. Bill was what I refer to as the Medal of Honor Sherpa for Kettles. He heard the story and helped advance it to get an upgrade of the medal um, to the Medal of Honor. And uh, an interesting little bit of history. And then we're going to talk to uh, an Army Ranger, Tony Brooks, who's going to tell the story about the search for Marcus Luttrell, uh, who you may know as the lone survivor out of Af- Afghanistan. And uh, Tony tells a very interesting and candid approach about trying to rescue somebody in Afghanistan. So great stories. Sit back and listen in. We want to welcome to Veterans Radio today William Volano. Bill served in the U.S. Army in the Medical Service Corps in 1955 to 1957. But we have him on uh, to talk about his involvement in shepherding forward a upgrade package for Lieutenant Colonel Charles Kettles, whose Distinguished Service Cross was ultimately upgraded to the Medal of Honor. And that Medal of Honor was awarded to him by President Barack Obama in uh, 19... Oh, I lost the date already. Uh, <laughs> yeah, okay. 1916. Uh, I'm sorry, 2016. So that, that uh, Medal of Honor upgrade uh, ceremony was in July of 2016. Um, 
And and uh, we're gonna let me let me just set this up a little bit that uh, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Kettle, who's now deceased and who received the Medal of Honor from President Barack Obama in July of 2016, it was for his saving uh, 40 soldiers and four crew members on a damaged UH-1D helicopter while under fire in Vietnam in 1967 really just months into his first deployment in Vietnam. And Charles Kettle sort of was really a, a, a born, you know, in his blood was aviation. His father was a uh, World War One Royal Air Force Canadian uh, and World War Two U.S. Army Air Corps pilot. Uh, so Charles came by to aviation, uh, you know, from his genetics. Um, That's right. And, and he was a graduate of uh, the Edison Institute High School in Dearborn, Michigan. He um, flew for Ford Motor Company. He ultimately uh, got an engineering degree from what was then Michigan State Normal College, but now is Eastern Michigan University. He served um, in the 50s, 1950s, uh, as a pilot with service in Korea, Japan, and Thailand. He got out. This is part of the amazing part of the story is he got out, returned, and started a Ford dealership with his brother, but re-enlisted in 1963 when the United States needed pilots for the Vietnam War, and, and, and Charles Kettles would have been about a 33-year-old at the time. Uh, he ultimately uh, qualified for helicopter um, flight, and uh, was sent off to, to Vietnam to join a new helicopter unit, the 176 Assault Helicopter Company. And it's in that role that he served as a flight commander and uh, was faced with a, a horrific situation when a battalion-sized enemy force ambushed and outnumbered elements of the 1st Brigade, 101st Airborne Division near Duke Pho. Um he led a, uh, a platoon of uh, these uh, UH Hueys helicopters again and again into intense fire to help uh, rescue these men, which he did. And as he said, he kept these 44 men uh, off the Vietnam Memorial. So um, the story of Charles Kettle, which we have told on Veterans Radio before, is quite incredible and, and, and is worth reading or listening to in its entirety. But we have on... Bill Volano to talk about kind of a, how do you get there? How do you go from receiving the Distinguished Service Cross and 50 years later uh, getting your medal upgraded to the Medal of Honor? And, and in our experience, these men never ask for this. It's somebody comes along and says, oh, my goodness, you know, this should be more. And that brings us to you, Bill. Um, All right. After your service, you came back to the Ann Arbor, Michigan area. You were president and CEO of a large nonprofit in southeast Michigan, and you got involved in the Veterans History Project. Tell us, tell us about that project. Well, let me tell you, first of all, I, I, I first met Charlie when I interviewed him for the Veterans History Project. And the Veterans History Project was established by Congress, I think, in the year 2000, and it was to collect and preserve and make accessible the uh, personal accounts of uh, American wartime veterans 
so that future generations would hear directly from the veteran about their experiences and know the realities of war. Um, if if I may talk about what we did locally, locally the, the Ypsilanti Rotary Club picked up the uh, the ball uh, about uh, setting up a local veterans history project. And uh, we were first made aware of this by a professor, a history professor at Eastern Michigan University. After I wrote several grants requesting funds, uh, since Congress did not provide any real assistance except for brochures and things of that sort. Well, after receiving the grants, uh, we purchased cameras and tapes and other equipment used in converting these tapes to DVDs, which we eventually sent to the Library of Congress. We also, as and one thing that I'm proud of, um, not that I had anything to do with it, but we also set up a local website for uh, veterans and their families uh, to access um, through the uh, Ypsilanti Historical Society uh, Museum. But you know, back to my interview with Charlie, I, I was nearly finished when his wife came down the stairs and said, uh, did you tell him about May 15th? And Charlie, well, yeah, you know. Uh, he started to describe the incident of May 15th. Uh, he, as you said, he made several trips to the war zone to deliver and pick up troops and deliver supplies and so on. And in the process, uh, enemy fire made at least three helicopters he was flying um, inoperable, unusable uh, after he returned to the uh, uh, landing zone. Uh, on his fourth trip, he had to borrow. Um, a copter from another unit. Uh, his his CO uh, very strongly advised him not to go, but Charlie went anyhow, and because uh, he knew that there were more stranded soldiers there. When he returned to the to the to the pickup zone, uh, the the eight soldiers would have certainly been captured or killed or whatever. And he was able to load them up. When he wanted to take off, his car, his copter was overloaded. When he tried to take off, he couldn't get enough lift because of the load. And he described how he would get enough lift because of the load. He then described how he would get lift a little bit, then bounce down on the road, on the, the dried riverbed, go up a little higher, bounce again. And he went through this process several times until he, he really got enough lift, all the while under enemy fire. And after he described all of this, he said, oh, piece of cake. Just another day so, of flying, right? <laughs> That was, you know, that's that's low-key Charlie, you know, a piece of cake. Um, 
when Charlie was asked at one point what he regarded as his, his greatest accomplishment, his answer was typical kettle. And he said his proudest uh, moment, if you will, was that there were 44 names that were not on that uh, wall in D.C. And that's how many soldiers he saved uh, at that at, on that day. And Charlie's heroics um, inspired a local group to put together a book describing his and other uh, veterans' experiences. And the, the title of that book is "We Answered the Call." Um, that 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 book, by the way, has been widely distributed to schools and libraries in this area, and of course to local veterans. Well, back to the interview. After I interviewed him. I went home, still struck by his heroics, and I called Charlie back and I said, you know, would you mind terribly if I tried to get your medal upgraded? And typical low-key Charlie said, well, yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, he also gave me permission to contact several veterans who, who um, knew what transpired that day. I made about a half a dozen contacts, calls to uh, veterans. And Bill, what year? All of whom what, declared. What year would this have been? I'm sorry. What year would this have been, Bill? Um, this was well. If he got it in 216, it had to be 207 or 2028. Yeah, I saw it was about a ten-year journey. I was, but I also saw it was less. Well, than it was. It was um, uh, actually. It, it, I'm a rather impatient guy. I'm told by my daughter. <laughs> um, She's probably right. But, uh, it took four and a half years of, of my process, anyhow. Um, but anyhow, I, I make contact with these veterans just. All of whom said, hey, if it wasn't for Charlie, I wouldn't be here today. Oh, God, you know. After that, I, I contacted uh, Congressman Dingell and eventually, of course, uh, Cong Congresswoman Dingell's office. And luckily, I, I made contact with uh, their worker or aide, uh, Sharon Vesprimi. Uh, she was fabulous. We started out by getting all of these veterans who knew what Charlie had done uh, to uh, uh, give us statements. And I had my own statement, too, which I don't believe in the final analysis carried much weight. But I pointed out that in my experiences at Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio, Texas, I witnessed many extraordinary stor stories by veterans and active duty military. Uh, Charlie's experiences overshadowed most of those. So that's what I said, and I, you know, again, I don't know what impact that had. Um, after getting these statements, little did we know that they had to be certified. Oh. So getting these statements certified meant another delay and took time and patience. 
And, and if I may, it reminded me of my own experiences in attempting to uh, get a direct commission as a social worker. Uh, as a newly married person, I wanted very much to do everything I could to uh, make sure that I had every opportunity to have my wife with me, even if it was only for a brief training period. Well, it, it took me 10 months to finally get my commission, and uh, I would complete <laughs> forms only to... That's the Army. Go ahead. That's the yeah. Army for you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, the, 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 it happened that I would fill out forms, and they would become obsolete. And you, you wonder, what? it's only a few months. But anyhow, I finally got to my local congressman, or through the help of somebody I knew. From that point on, I heard only from the adjutant general. Before that, I was talking only to civilians. And they really did not like me for some reason. Well, Bill, this is this does tie into how things went with uh, Charlie Kettles in that if you didn't have the right congressperson uh, oh, yes. working with Absolutely. you, it it wouldn't have moved along. So how did how did uh, little old you get the Congress folks to say, "Hey, this is worthy of advancing"? Well, you know, this is what I keep, people ask, call me and ask me, how, how do you go about doing this? And I say, first of all, you got to get to your local congressman and you got to make sure that you get an aide that really is committed, just the way Sharon was. She was committed absolutely 1,000%. So she was absolutely key in all of this, really. Um, and, and did you have to track down certified statements from those who were on the battle scene, his commanders up the chain? Who all did you well, have to reach I, out to? Yeah, I, I, I talked to, um, I, I didn't talk to a CO, but I talked to other uh, commission officers. I also talked to his gunner who uh, I, I met at the ceremony. He He lost a leg, and I guess... He was Charlie's only casualty, um, but he was absolutely committed to to uh, Charlie and what he had done. Um, you know, as I said, the, the whole process took me a four and a half years. I'm sorry, yes, four and a half years, um, and it finally got cleared by the Pentagon, the Congress, and uh, I guess the president himself. And since his performance was more than five years ago, he needed, or we needed a special exemption by congressmen. This was a necessary necessary, uh, process because it was more than five years ago. And thanks to Congresswoman Dingell and Senator Stabenow and Senator Peters, uh, the process was approved by uh, Congress, and uh, Congress and, and Charlie got his very well-deserved recognition. Recognition, um, just 
Just, that was great. When when we started, uh, I started trying to line you up to have this discussion because uh, I kind of refer to guys like you as Medal of Honor Sherpas, the guides that get you up Mount Everest. This is almost an, an impossible task. Uh, you said, well, it wasn't just me. It's, it's, it's a lot of people who were involved. And I understand uh, Charlie's son, Mike, who's a retired Navy pilot, also helped in this endeavor. Can can you explain about yes, maybe I, the? I'll refer to it as the team kettles here that that helped you move this along. Yes, 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 absolutely. Um, prior to the actual ceremony, by the way, I spent oh the better part of an hour on the phone talking to one of President Obama's aides, and practically everything I told the aide. Uh, President Obama mentioned in his presentation as if he had interviewed Charlie himself, you know, and it just goes to show how well prepared our president was at the time. I mean, he, he, um, uh, he had aides who, who really helped him. Well, and that's one of the questions I wanted to ask you about is, you know, no, very few people will ever be in the room for a Medal of Honor ceremony. And, and it's one of those things where you wonder whether or not that, that event, that day, the days leading up to it are as respectful and dignified and powerful as one might think a Medal of Honor ceremony should be. So walk us through those couple of days and how, how you felt uh, going into that. Oh, the, my wife and I were invited to go to Washington, and uh, it uh, it was overwhelming. It really was. Um, and if I can inject another personal note here, prior to the ceremony, my one claim to fame was that early in the 1950s, I had dinner with Eleanor Roosevelt, and, you know, that was a big deal. Uh, me and about nine other students from the University of Connecticut. Um, during the, Med- the, the Medal of Honor uh, presentation, President Obama mentioned me by name four times. And uh, believe me, that, that replaced Eleanor, <laughs> I claim to say. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, but talk talk to us a little bit about uh, that ceremony and the build up to it, uh, um, and and maybe sort of what what you saw from the inside that the outside never gets to see. Well, first of all, the the room was mobbed. The, just people from all over the country came, and uh, it was was a very dignified um, uh, process uh, presentation. Uh, the, the president was great. The uh, other speakers, and I've forgotten who all they were, they, they were really good. Um, and it was overwhelmingly impressive to, for me and for my wife, uh, you know, I don't think we ever expected that kind of um, ceremony, to be part of that kind of ceremony, and uh, it, it was um, 
it was worthwhile. Well, it's one of those things that, uh, again, most of us will never really experience. But I think we can all think about, and I'd like your views on, why do we think the Medal of Honor is still important to, to the civilian population today? What, what's your to thoughts the about it? population? Yeah, what, what, should, what should other people take away from a Medal of Honor recipient? What's, what's important about it? I think they need to know that these veterans, these soldiers, went into what's called harm's way without any regard for their own safety, but they were dedicated to the their their fellow soldiers. Their, their, and because of that, they were able to do spectacular things. And again... There was no consideration for their own safety, and that was Charlie, 100%. He didn't care about himself. He talked about a, um, a mortar coming up through the, the floor of the copter, you know, and just inches away from where he was sitting. You know, it, didn't, it was kind of all matter-of-fact to him. But uh, his, his saving the soldiers, and as I said before, his uh, claim to fame was that there were 44 guys who were not on that wall, um, and that's impressive. And we're talking, to, we're talking to Bill Volano, who is a uh, – I saw him referred to – Bill, I heard, saw you referred to as an amateur historian. I don't know if you accept that mantle or not, but – Oh yes. How many how many veterans for the Veterans History Project do you do you think you've interviewed at this point? Oh, uh, I don't know. Maybe seventy five, hundred. And one of the things you know, he, he so Bill's doing this, and the kettle story just stands out as so much more. But I but I think it's important for us to read and understand these Medal of Honor stories because every one of those 75 or so veterans you've interviewed have some small part, similar part, of where they served and did their duty to the country and didn't really worry about themselves. They, you know, they were away from home. They were away from family. They might have been in harm's way. They certainly were more than inconvenienced and and every veteran has a little slice of that, um, the, the, the sacrifice that the Medal of Honor recipients have, I think. Did, did you, did, do yeah. you feel the same? I, 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 yeah, I've been asked several times why I got involved in the Veterans History Project to begin with. And in addition to being asked by the EMU professor, uh, Nelson, uh, I had four uncles, a brother, and a, and a close cousin all of whom served in World War II, uh, all except my brother, were in combat. Two, two of my uncles were severely injured. Uh, one of them was on Omaha Beach in, in D-Day. And, and as I say, except for my brother, who was pretty lucky at the time, uh, they all were in combat. My, my cousin was actually on Iwo Jima. My family has, from all of these relatives, not word one about them. And I think that's absolutely tragic. 
Um, and it's something that that we all bear shame for, you know, not not insisting on getting their their history uh, for their grandkids and our grandkids and our great grandkids and so on, um, because there's nothing like hearing it from from the people who experienced it. Um, and that that's that was my motivation, if you will. Well, one of the things that uh, you know, uh, I can elaborate for Bill here is that the Ann Arbor-Ypsilanti area has always been really focused on honoring its veterans. Um, uh, you mentioned the book, We Answered the Call. I have in front of me the book, uh, Sacrifice is Not Forgotten, Brothers Rest in Peace, yeah. that um, I went to to find some material about you, uh, having helped out. Uh, John Kinzinger is authored of that one, and with some uh, yeah. uh, stories of everybody who, who lost their life in Vietnam from the region. Um, so I do I agree with you, Bill. I, I think it's important to tell these stories and, and get the the words down on paper uh, or in audio video content. Uh, you're you're no longer a young man, are you, Bill? No, I'm going to be 91 in three and a half months. So we were really happy to uh, capture this uh, uh, discussion because. Charles Kettles is now gone, and um, exactly how this came about would could easily have been lost if we didn't take a little time to talk about what started as a simple interview uh, in the Veterans History Project, and more, maybe more importantly, and there's probably a lesson for all of us here, when the wife comes down and says, did you tell him about? Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. how this all got started, wasn't it? <laughs> Got to listen to your wife, yes, Absolutely. If it wasn't for Ann, you know, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have asked him anything about this because I didn't get any hint of what he was doing. Uh, and, and she came down the stairs and said, "Hey, did you tell him about May 15th? <laughs> we sat down again, and he went, "Yeah, okay," and he told me. Well, you know, it, it, it's the lead-up to he broke three or four helicopters for the government on his way to this heroic act. But, they, you know, that's that's sort of the, yeah, I broke those. i got to give them back now. So uh, He actually got a bill from, I don't know, it was certainly a joke, for the uh, four, four helicopters that he destroyed in, in this process. Uh, and he's got that, he had that framed and, in his house, and it was uh, it's kind of a fun thing. Well, I think I think your work in moving this forward, being the Medal of Honor Sherpa, if you will, recognizing that this was above and beyond the normal story and needed to be honored and retold, is so important and so critical. I'm sure the the Kettles family is very appreciative of all all of the work that you've done there. But on behalf of all veterans and on behalf of veterans radio listeners, I want to thank you, uh, Bill Volano, for what you did here to preserve this history, as, lo- as well as the history that you're preserving for the other 75 men that you've interviewed. Well, as most of you know, Charles Kettles is uh, a local hero, uh, in the southeast Michigan area. He's been recognized by the VA Medical Center uh, being named in his honor. So we're really proud to bring you this, sort of this little bit of backstory. Uh, we want to bring you some thanks from our sponsors, and then we'll talk about uh, our friends, the Army Rangers. So uh, stay with us. 
Military veterans touch everyone's life. I'm guessing right now you're thinking of a veteran, a close friend, relative. Maybe it's you. Even the toughest of us sometimes need help, but don't know where to turn for support. You don't need special training to help a veteran in your life. We can all help someone going through a difficult time. Learn how you can be there for veterans. Visit VeteransCrisisLine.net. VeteransCrisisLine.net. A message from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. The Medal of Honor is the highest award for valor in combat given a member of the Armed Forces of the United States. There have been over 3,400 recipients of the nation's highest award. This is one of them. Private Dale Hansen killed 12 Japanese soldiers in a one-man attack on their positions. Details after this. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at 1-800-693-4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. Hansen unhesitatingly took the initiative during a critical stage of the action and armed with a rocket launcher, crawled to an exposed position where he attacked and destroyed a strategically located hostile pillbox. With his weapon subsequently destroyed by enemy fire, he seized a rifle and continued his one-man assault. Reaching the crest of a ridge, he opened fire on six Japanese and killed four before his rifle jammed. Attacked by the two remaining Japanese, he beat them off with the butt of his rifle and then climbed back to cover. Returning with another weapon and supply of grenades, he fearlessly advanced and destroyed a strong mortar position and annihilated eight more of the enemy. The Medal of Honor series is a production of Veterans Radio. We also want to thank our VSO sponsors, the Vietnam Veterans of America, chapter Charles S. Kettle's chapter, Chapter 310 in Ann Arbor, the VFW, Graf O'Hara, Post 423, the American Legion Press Corps Post 46 in Ann Arbor. We really appreciate their continuing support of everything that we do. We want to welcome to Veterans Radio today, Tony Brooks, an Army Ranger and uh, now a uh, doctor of chiropractic medicine. But we're here to talk about his uh, new book, Leave No Man Behind, the untold story of the Rangers' unrelenting search for Marcus Luttrell, the Navy SEAL, lone survivor in Afghanistan. Tony, welcome to Veterans Radio. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, it's, it's a, I had the opportunity to read the book, and it's a, a real good um, book to give maybe people information that they're not getting about uh, what it's to be, what it's like to be an Army Ranger, what you have to go through, and then uh, this mission in Afghanistan. You served, though, from uh, 2003 to 2007 in the in the army. Well, and you describe in the book "Leave No Man Behind" about uh, army ranger training. And as I mentioned to you earlier, I think that that part of the book's really helpful for family members who maybe have, you know their their loved one didn't give them a peek inside what's really going on in the training. Yeah, so when I went through, um, it's different than it is now, but it's still along the same lines. The goal of a lot of that training is to break you down, really see who wants to be there, who's not going to quit, who's got the willpower to to see the end game. Um, so they do everything in their power to just 
you know, physically and mentally break you down um, to see who's, you know, it's kind of a simulation of war, right? Who is going to rise to the top when the bullets start flying? And that's what the training is designed to do. And, you know, I tried to depict it as best as possible, but it was very grueling. But in my head, I wasn't going to quit. They were never going to break me in my head, at least. <laughs> well, and they tried as as well they should, because when you get out of here, you got to live by the slogan of Rangers lead the way, don't you? Absolutely. And um, you complete uh, Ranger training. Um, as I say, it's a difficult, not, not everybody who starts comes out the other end. Um, and you, you ultimately did service in Afghanistan and in Iraq, Afghanistan in 2005 and Iraq in 06 and 07. But the, the book primarily focuses on um, 2005 and the rescue efforts for uh, the helicopter known as Turbine 33 during Operation Red Wings 2. Set this up for us. Tell us a little bit, bit about how this comes about and, and, uh, your your role in this process yeah so in ranger battalions uh, the 75th ranger regiment they deployed at a very high operational tempo every six months approximately they were deploying during the global war on terror each battalion just rotating in and out of country um and so i knew i was going to deploy soon after arriving to second ranger battalion at fort lewis and our next deployment happened to be you know, the spring of spring and summer of 2005. So I had six months of training to get to get there and get ready. We knew we were going to Afghanistan and the war had changed at that time. So I got to Afghanistan and it wasn't, you know, the heavy fighting that had happened prior and after, actually. But at this moment, it was more of a win the hearts and minds type of war. And rangers at least my platoon and my company at the time weren't very um active uh on this deployment in fact it might have been the slowest deployment ever for for my company and you know we trained a lot on that deployment my very first mission was operation red wings so we were training 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 and then we get word that we lost a Chinook helicopter and you guys are going to recover it. So that's kind of how it started. I want to, I want to back up to, I want to back up to something you mentioned it uh, about training, training, training. And again, I think this is one of the things the civilian soldier divide doesn't really understand. Um, there's so much training that has to go on, but training is a hazardous business, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, I actually, when I was in 2nd Ranger Battalion, I lost more guys in training than I did in combat. So it's, yeah, it's definitely scary business. And I just don't know that our civilian counterparts fully appreciate both the, the extent of training and, and, and the, the, the hazards associated with training. And for family members, you know, they're worried about those overseas deployments, but they <laughs> equally have to be concerned about uh, training and training accidents. And, and they happen in all kinds of ways, including some freaky ways, don't they? 
Oh, absolutely. Parachute accidents. I mean, I ran off of a, a loading dock and was knocked unconscious. I mean, live fire accidents. There's plenty of different ways that people can get hurt, um, you know, lose their lives as well. I just think, we, you know, it's important to remind folks of thinking about and, and keeping good thoughts about our troops, even even when they're stateside, even when they're involved just in quote-unquote training. But but let's come back to, to Afghanistan in 2005 in the summer and, and this uh, mission, uh, the your first mission, actually, I think, um, to search and rescue for the downed helicopter. Tell, tell us a little bit about uh, what was going on. Yeah, so what we what we had heard, and you got to remember that anytime there's a search and rescue mis- mission, the intel for it is very very weak. And all we knew was that a helicopter with 16 men on board had been shot down. We didn't even know that there was a Navy SEAL reconnaissance team missing at the time. We learned that um, as Intel started pouring in. But, um, yeah, my very first mission. So I had no idea what to expect. Um, I had been told that we always had great Intel and, you know, everything was well planned. Well, this was a very hasty mission. You know, we've got Americans down and we need to go get them. So, I learned on the fly, so to speak, or or I was thrown into the belly of the beast. And as you um, and as the whole platoon kind of goes off on this uh, mission, um, you're on a high mountaintop uh, in the Kunar province. Um, I think you're about 9,000 feet high up in the mountain. Correct. Anybody who's like, okay, how do I put that in perspective? You know, if you've been out to uh, say uh, Wyoming to the Grand Tetons, I don't, I don't think they go up nine thousand feet, or they're pretty close to nine thousand feet. I mean, this is difficult terrain, difficult uh, uh, oxygen levels. Talk to us a little about about the physical experience that you that you describe in the book. Yeah, I mean, thank goodness uh, I was in the seventy fifth Ranger Regiment. Because the way we train is very excessive, and we push our bodies to the limits every single day, um, not just when we're at war, but also back at home. So when we got on the mountain physically, um, I don't think any of us ever thought we would experience any hardship, ever. Um, But quickly did we realize that was not the truth. Um, When you're out on that mountain, um, carrying the amount of weight that we were carrying. I think each guy had a minimum of 50 pounds on them uh, up in this terrain. We had no maps, and we were using satellite imagery to navigate this terrain. And if you've ever seen satellite imagery, it's a straight view from the top. You cannot see terrain. So everything was a surprise once we got onto the ground. But yeah, every breath you could feel, every step you you took was um, much more difficult than you experienced down at uh, sea level. Well, I think that's part of the book that's particularly uh, enlightening to those of us who were, aren't there to, you really paint the picture of 
you know, following these goat herder trails down a rocky mountain where you don't know where you're going and, and, and the footwork is, I mean, you talk about sliding down hills, I mean, you know, down, down part of this mountain. Um, and that wasn't an accident. It, it was an accident, but it wasn't an, uh, an occasional occurrence. This was happening to everybody, wasn't it? Yeah, I, there was one part that I write about in there where we were climbing up a very rocky hillside. And uh, I'm surprised we didn't actually cause an avalanche, <laughs> to be honest, because, you know, we had a whole bunch of guys going up this mountainside. Every single guy is knocking rocks down, sliding. You know, they take a few steps and they slide down three steps. And they take two steps forward and three steps backwards. Um, and everyone's falling and dinging their knees and elbows. And um, it, it was terrain that had we have seen maps, we probably would have avoided. But, you know, he did the battle. We didn't have maps of that area because it was so uh, remote that... You know, we we did what we could, and we struggled. Yeah, and and part of that too. Anybody who's been at elevation, if you've been in Colorado or the Rockies or you know wherever, you understand the impact of dehydration. And you guys are out there for longer than you anticipated, trying to find uh, the downed uh, uh, helicopter, the Chinook, um, and dehydration and water becomes a problem uh, for the Rangers as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were told uh, at the onset of the mission that this is 12 hours in and out, 12-hour mission. So we packed accordingly. And, you know, a week later, we were still out there. So... And we're not going to no, make we any. To. We're not going to make any fun of army planning at this, this point. But, uh, yeah, somebody, somebody yeah, misshot I mean, that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there was no, I mean, you couldn't plan for this because um, there were no maps. Um, we were going to save another, you know, another service. Actually, they were uh, under a different command. And if you know anything about the military, um, Navy, Army, Air Force, we don't necessarily talk well with each other. We kind of stick to our own terrain, so to speak. Well, we were going out to to rescue. Navy personnel and Army personnel. So, I mean, any combat search and rescue mission is not going to have a lot of planning. It's very hasty and it's very fast. And, and, and ultimately, you we learned did, really hard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, ultimately, you did find the Chinook. And the most difficult part of the book and the most honest and maybe raw part of the book is identifying the 16 men who were uh, lost and the obligation to bring them and put them into body bags and move them to transport. Tell us a little bit about how that affected you then and how it affects you today. I mean, that's something that will never leave you. Um, at the time, it was, you know, I was so mission-oriented. I was trained very well, and... In the moment, it is just get the job done. Just get our guys home. That's all we cared about. These were Americans, and it didn't matter what it took. We were going to get them back. Um, so there wasn't a lot of room for emotions at the time. It wasn't until slightly after that all of us kind of realized what just happened. 
Um, but yeah, to this day, I, you know, I think about that mountain. I think about it probably daily. Um, and mostly in a healthy way and a thankful way. Uh, but it wasn't always that way. You know, it's, it's, it's one of those things you have to work through and you have to be able to separate wartime from your everyday life. And that's not an easy thing to do. Uh, thankfully, you know, I've, I've been through lots of training, lots of schooling. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a physician, so I know how to deal with it. And that isn't necessarily true with, you know, a lot of my brothers and sisters in uniform. Yeah, and I, uh, the emotions and, never end, and they, and they should be. You should recognize that it's okay to cry, and it's okay to to be upset. It's okay to have those emotions. Where on that mountain, we weren't, we didn't have time to do that. Well, and on that mountain, you have to do things that you know, no normal human being ever has to. But for army rangers on a recovery mission. You know, it's you've you've got to look for booby traps. You have to worry about if everybody isn't booby trapped, and, and then you have to collect belongings of these uh, dead uh, servicemen and and get them into the right body bags. Um, and unfortunately, there you know, uh, you write how some men were looked like where they were just laying there undisturbed, and others obviously were much more. Uh, their bodies were much more impacted by the crash and the and the uh, probably RPG that brought them down. That's all stuff it takes years to process, doesn't it, uh, Tony Brooks? Absolutely, many many years. I mean, that's why the book's coming out now and not ten years ago. Um, and, you know, I I've struggled even to this day. I struggle with writing about it because you know i i genuinely love those guys that passed away on that mountain and i care about their families and i know that when they read this it's going to be hard for them but sometimes you know first of all i think history uh, must be told and these hard realities need to be the civilian world needs to see needs to hear this because we tend to glorify war um, all over the place, video games, movies, and it's not glorious. It really isn't um, a necessary evil. Yes, I do believe that. But uh, we need to, we also need to know what we're really getting into when we do go to war. And this part of the book on, on the um, recovery of the men um, from Turbine 33 sort of bumps into maybe the most famous Navy SEAL recovery effort to Lone Survivor with Marcus Luttrell, which has had all kinds of uh, um, publicity. But it's that part of of the recovery of Tribune 3 that I think is the most, maybe the most important part of your book because it gives us a look and an insight into something maybe we didn't know about and the challenges there. But walk us through almost the accidental um, uh, looking for and ultimately recovering um, uh, rescue, I should say, of uh, Marcus Luttrell. Yeah, so like I was saying, it was a very hasty mission, and we really didn't know everything that was going on on the ground when we actually arrived. Uh, we knew the helicopter was down, and that was our primary goal. Well, as as the mission developed, 
we were informed of the four-man Navy SEAL reconnaissance team that was also missing. And we thought that we might uh, see them at the crash site, but they weren't there. Uh, at that point, we moved forward to try and find them. And again, no intel. We had some. We knew their, the path that they were supposed to take, so we definitely searched every single nook and cranny of that mountain. And it took us days to really locate and find and narrow down the areas that he could have run to. And I'll just say this, Marcus Luttrell, I have no clue how he survived that ambush. His his team was ambushed in a in terrain that no human could have fought out of. So I don't know how he actually got out of there. I mean, the movie probably depicts it pretty well based on what I've heard from him. But it's uh, pretty unbelievable how it took us days to find him on that mountain. And we knew his potential path that he had taken. So just shows you how rugged that terrain really is. Well, and I think it also highlighted for me in reading uh, your book, Leave No Man Behind, the untold story of the Rangers' unrelenting search for Marcus Luttrell, the Navy SEAL lone survivor in Afghanistan by Tony Brooks. It it highlighted for me just how difficult this was, that not only the train was, but then working with the locals, he's ultimately found in a village, and you have a line in there about, you know, if we didn't find him when we did, who's to say the village elders wouldn't have just traded him away to the Taliban? And, and man, that just hit me when you sort of pointed out that all that you guys were doing and pushing for was really the you know sort of the first man to get there if there was a survivor you had to get him and bring him back before if you will the Taliban would have found him that that was that was a powerful section that you wrote yeah i mean if you think about it you know the amount of in in the movie i think they they do kind of point this out that you know the Taliban wasn't going to just walk away they knew he was there and they wanted him so you know, the decision could have been made at any moment for them to say, no, we're going to get him now and we're going to take you guys out. So we knew that we knew that every single second mattered. So we were moving at speeds that even even in training, when we're trying to push our bodies to the limit, we would never uh, safely move at the speeds we were moving at. We were moving at reckless speeds, and we all knew it, but we were okay with it because the alternative was the Taliban getting our guy. So, yeah, I, I do think that that moment, every single moment out there mattered. Yeah, I hope you enjoyed the interview with Dr. Tony Brooks, Army Ranger, who was on the mountainside searching for Marcus Luttrell with his Ranger unit uh, back in Afghanistan. A lot of life lessons there. Uh, very interesting story. Uh, take a look at the book. Listen to our entire podcast. Uh, we want to also tell you about uh, one of our great sponsors. This is Dale Throneberry from Veterans Radio with an important announcement for you, our loyal listeners. In partnership with U.S. Wings, we are bringing back our monthly flight jacket giveaway. 
Beginning right now, you can win a Top Gun Maverick flight jacket. This is U.S. Wing's recreation of the exact CWU jacket worn in the upcoming Top Gun 2 Maverick movie. This jacket could be yours. All you have to do is register to win. Go to veteransradio.net, click on the flight jacket, and register to be in the drawing to win this month's Top Gun flight jacket. Thanks for joining us today on Veterans Radio. As I said earlier, I am Jim Fossone. It's been, been a pleasure to be your officer of the deck today. We try to bring you unique stories that you might not hear anywhere else about U.S. military exploits and things our veterans are doing out there and the, their love of country. We hope you'll come back next week and listen in. And until then, you can check us out on veteransradio.net or go to our Facebook page where we're always posting something new. We do post our uh, new podcasts every week on Tuesdays, so you can get there from the veteransradio.net site. And next week, Dale will be back uh, with some interesting stories, and we look forward to uh, bringing those to you, always send us emails if you want uh, a particular story told at dale at veteransradio.net or jim at veteransradio.net. And until next time on Veterans Radio, you are dismissed. <laughs>